Who could possibly forget the incredible story of the Thai football team who got trapped inside a cave? 12 boys, all under 16, and their coach stuck inside a complex cave system that was rapidly filling with water. My guest on this episode is John Philanthon, the cave diver who, alongside an incredible team of equally as skilled divers, rescued the boys in what can only be described as a miracle underpinned by some incredible decision-making and out-of-the-box thinking. Now, this isn't an episode about diving, but it is an episode about life lessons and wisdom that you will want to add to your leadership toolkit immediately. But before we dive in, sorry, something really big is about to happen on Leader Connect, and I'm worried that you might miss out. If you want to feel confident about calling yourself a leader. If you want to network with people who understand the challenges we face on the leadership journey, and if you want to indulge in simple, effective leadership training that really, really works, then you need to become part of the Leader Connect community today. Find us at leader-connect.co.uk. A few weeks ago, I sat down and watched the TV. I don't do it very often. And I watched the most amazing show on Disney Plus, which is one of those shows that got me thinking over a long period of time and going back and kind of questioning things and trying to understand things. And that show is called The Rescue. And The Rescue is centered around the incredible rescue of the 12 boys and their football coach who were stuck in the cave in Thailand in 2018. And it centers around a team of divers who went in and did the most amazing rescue. And I am so incredibly delighted to have one of those divers with me today on the Leader Connect podcast. John Valanthan, thank you so much for joining us today. What I wanted to ask you, and I always ask people to do this, is could you, within 60 seconds, just kind of give us your CV or your life story, please? Hi, Sarah. It's, it's nice to be here. My CV certainly, perhaps, is a little odd. I'm a cave diver, and that's my, my hobby rather than uh, my profession. But I've been a, a cave diver or cave explorer for, for a great many years. I started caving in the Scouts, and I was taken to a cave in Somerset called Swildens Hole. And that, for me, ignited a passion that has perhaps given me a direction for most of my life. My career has been electronics and computing, and I started working in Great Ormond Street Hospital, which was perhaps interesting as it gave me an impression or certainly an insight into risk versus reward and also diligence that's required for life support equipment. And so over the years as a cave diver or cave explorer, I've not just been to caves that others have explored. I've been focused on exploring caves for myself, mapping a new and uncharted cave in the process, setting world records for the longest cave dive and also the British cave diving depth record. And perhaps inevitably, with cave diving being a very small community, I've also been involved in a number of caving and cave diving rescues over the years. And one of which, as you pointed out, was in Thailand a few years ago, where a football team was trapped. And alongside a great many others, as a huge team effort, I was able to bring uh, all of the boys to the surface 
without injury, which at the time was uh, rather unexpected. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's the, the lesson that came out of it. It was, it felt like it was almost impossible. And we'll, we'll extract some of the kind of leadership bits of that, but it felt like it was almost impossible, but clearly it wasn't lots of thinking out of the box and, and they were all rescued, which is, was just phenomenal. So what I wanted to ask you first was just a little bit about cave diving. Now I've done a bit of not cave diving, but potholing in the past. And my rule was always put the biggest person in front of me because if they could get through the gap, then I was going to get through the gap as well. And it does, it takes an awful lot of kind of mind over matter because you're in these small spaces and you, it's, it's frightening. But when you do it, you get this enormous sense of achievement. I just wondered, obviously you said you started cave diving when you were in the Scouts. I now know that you are also a Scout leader too. That first cave diving experience, did you know instantly that you would 100% found the thing that you were going to do for the rest of your life? I certainly didn't know that I found what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, but we were taken to a, a particular piece of cave and, and somebody told me that it was virtually impossible to go through the flooded section that they were pointing out. They listed all the difficulties and I suppose I was probably naive as a youth. And at the time, I just had this strong sense of, I can't see why not. And I sort of decided there and then that I would come back to this place at some point and I would continue the exploration or, or the journey uh, into the hill. And that sort of set a seed for me. But what, what I would say is that when you describe caving, you're describing being inside a hill. Like, and I can hear the, the tone in your voice when you talk about it being frightening. Yeah. But actually, if you think of your world as the passage that you're standing in or, or laying in or, or whatever, if that's your world, it's actually potentially a, a small and friendly place. And there's not a lot there to, to do you any harm. And if you're at one with the environment and relaxed, it, it's actually not, not a bad place to be. So perhaps the fear is how you look at your environment. And that's true, not just of caving. It's true of, of anything that we're uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, it's probably more dangerous for me to cross the road here than it is to sit inside that cave. But yes, it's and I think some of it is that kind of historical, you know, so and so was very fearful when they did it and small spaces and everything. And it's and it's all of this stuff that this baggage that we kind of get from other people as well. But you said something really interesting in that. And I wanted to just kind of go through, um, you have a book at the moment, which people can buy on Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, or in, in any bookshop, 13 Lessons That Save 13 Lives. And what I love about the book is that it's it's very relevant. It, it takes you through the story of the cave rescue in Thailand, but you also put with it some, some really great lessons for life, which are relevant to anybody, cave diver or not. And one of the first lessons that you've got in there is, is start with, why not? And actually, that's so true, isn't it? And and clearly, you decided that when you were a, a young lad, that, that here's this, this seemingly mammoth challenge in front of you. Why not? Do you apply that to a lot of your decision-making in life and, and, and probably the decisions that you made in Thailand? Certainly, I apply that sort of philosophy to a lot of things in life. I, 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 I can be quite easily intimidated by challenges. All of us can be, and it's very easy to look at a challenge and to think, I, I can't do that, or that can't be done by my team. And what I try and do is if you turn that on its head and rather than saying, why do it, or I can't do it, if you say, why not, 
then suddenly the narrative changes. You're accepting that it's going to happen. And now you're looking for solutions rather than looking for reasons that something can't be done. And that tends to move you forward. So sometimes it's only a very small step forwards, but that small step forwards might give you a little more vision. It might, if it's up a hill, you can see a little bit further and possibly you can start to see uh, how a solution might take, might take place. So that concept of turning the, I can't do that onto its head and saying, why not really is quite a powerful thing. And I also have another concept, which I, which I call, I, I like to call it the travelator as, as you find on an airport, yeah. uh, when you step onto a travelator, you kind of know you're going to get to the end. That's because that's, that's how it works. And saying why not is almost like stepping onto the travelator. You're accepting that this is going to happen. And it feels sometimes like there's this external force pushing you forwards and providing a, a little bit of drive when perhaps you might be tired or a little bit of self-doubt might be creeping in. You've got this imagined external force and it just allows you to move forwards and then solutions start to present themselves. You start to gain some confidence and those things kind of snowball. Okay. Um, speaking as a, I am the person that, that sometimes, depending on what mood I'm in, I won't go on that travelator at the airport. And, and it is to do with kind of frame of mind at the time and getting yourself into the right zone, isn't it? I think that's definitely true, but I really love that analogy. It's so visual and it's so brilliant. Um, so I wanted to, to kind of put some of your um, tips from the book, your lessons from the book and put them into the leadership concepts that we discussed here in Leader Connect. And number three on your list is this idea of zoom in and zoom out. The idea that, and I think as leaders, we tend to get obsessed with the detail. In fact, you see it on people's CVs, you know, I, I'm really interested in the detail. I, you know, no, no stone left unturned, that kind of thing. And actually as leaders, that's not always, but it definitely isn't the healthiest place to put yourself into because then you don't get to see the bigger picture. I've, I've always found that society especially talks about focus and how important focus is. And whilst that's true for people who may be doing sports and they have to focus on performance and so on, when you're dealing with the real world, it's usually not what you're looking at with your laser-like focus that causes you the problems. It's the things that come from the periphery, often unexpected and, and sometimes de derail what you're trying to do. And so uh, the lesson zoom in, zoom out is, is trying to take the, the best of both worlds, really. It's trying to say, sometimes you need a laser like focus, or you need to have your team apply that focus on a very specific objective or a very specific problem, but also you need to have the ability to step back and just keep an eye on, on what's going on in cave diving. It's very obvious that you need to be able to breathe because if you can't, then you don't last very long. But what quite often happens if somebody has a, a diving regulator failure, so they can't breathe underwater is they completely focus on changing regulators and they manage that they're alive, they're happy, but they realize they've lost the line and they now have no idea where they are in the cave. So by that complete focus, potentially panic or fear on one thing you've created a much bigger problem by not maintaining an awareness of what's going on. So the lesson really is, is about doing it exactly as you're suggesting is zooming in, 
and having focus and, and also zooming out and keeping an eye on the big picture, but also things that may appear irrelevant at the time, 10 minutes down the line or an hour down the line, you may need to remember something that happened because it may be relevant, but you didn't know it was important at the time. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other things that we are not so great at as leaders is taking time out. And I always like to use the concept, and actually it's quite relevant to our conversation, is the concept of putting your own oxygen mask on first, where, you know, ensuring that we are rested, that we have taken time out. And number four on your list is rest and decompress. Now, two things. Uh, the first thing is, is your kind of rest and decompression from everyday life, is that the cave diving? And then the second thing is, why is rest and recompressing so important to all of us? For, for me, the, the rest and decompression, de decompression clearly being a play on the, on the diving analogy, it, it's a state of mind, really. It, it's not about a particular activity. Certain things can be done in a most stressful way, or you can have a, a, a relaxing time, whether that's work, whether that's diving, whether that's going out for a, a walk or a run uh, after work. For me, the, the important thing here is, is to understand that we all have limited resources just personally. And if we don't look after ourselves, then we have less to give to the team. In fact, if you don't look after yourself, eventually you become a burden on the team. The first rule in cave rescue, the first rule in any sort of first aid or emergency situation is not to make yourself a casualty. You have to look after yourself. And whilst that might be counterintuitive, that is the, the key way that I see of not making a situation worse and making sure in both the short term and the long term that you have enough capacity to be able to add to the team and, and solve the problem. Yeah, absolutely. So if we could kind of move from the book and, and now sort of look specifically at some of the processes that happened during the, 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 the Thai cave rescue, I, one of the things that I picked up is this, is this kind of immense amount of thoughtful, but occasionally very quick decision-making. And I wanted to ask you how you go about making decisions in difficult scenarios. And this could apply to, to any of the rescues you've done or indeed any of the cave diving you've done really, because I think that you do have to make quite dis quick decisions. And a lot of people live in absolute fear of making quick decisions and subsequently they don't make any decisions at all. I'm a great believer in pre-planning. Lots of people talk about spontaneity, but for, for any sort of rescue or any sort of situation, really, if, if you have a base of pre-planning, then hopefully when you reach a situation that you're unfamiliar with, you're going to pick a plan that is as closest to the situation you find yourself in, modify it as little as possible, hopefully adding in as small amount of error as possible, and then you have some confidence that what you're going to do hopefully meets the bill. I think I can be decisive. I, I tend to, I tend to apply a mixture of what I would call gut feeling and that's, that's important, but equally I'm very calculating. I, I like to back that up with data and, and what's interesting 
with all of this is, especially working in a large organization, you can't just go off and do things because you think they're the right thing to do. You need to be able to justify those. You need to be able to present data to, to back up those decisions, even if that's only in your own mind so that you can justify what you're trying to do. So in terms of make it, making decisions as a concept and during a cave rescue, I, I would always have that set of plans to refer to. Uh, in my mind, it's a library. In, in, the, in reality, it's a blue folder, although most of it I, I keep with me. But it's the idea of trying to uh, pick a situation that is as close to your experience, extending that, and then uh, working with that. So you've got some confidence that you, you're, you've introduced as few errors as possible. And I think if, if you know it's the right thing to do, then you've got to look at the situation and is it appropriate to act or should you be uh, trying to solicit a team or, or solicit opinion from a team and influence or whatever. But I think you've got to make that decision and you've got to go, go, with, that, go with that decision and be prepared to accept the consequences either way, but also be prepared to make a, make a change if somebody presents a, a better solution with better data. Yeah, absolutely. So I love this concept of, of going back through almost your memory files and looking at stuff that you've done previously, because chances are most people have arrived at leadership with, with quite a lot of files in the old memory bank and, and, and drawing, you know, the situation that presents you to it presents itself to you now and drawing on previous experience which I think is is great and really really important and then and then this concept that quite often I think leaders kind of go right I've, I've made the decision and now I can't back down on it and it's my decision and uh, woe betide anybody that comes in and, and and tells me otherwise and and I do think it's a brave but very very important thing to do for for a leader to kind of sit there and go so-and-so has come to me and said, actually, no, I don't, I don't think that's the right way to do it. To sit and listen and be prepared to change the plan or the decision, I think is hugely important. What you're describing to me is taking ego out of the equation. Yes. If, you, if you insist, I'm right, it has to be this way just because I've said that, then you're kind of backing yourself down a road that, that you don't want to. If you're prepared to say, yes, this is a better solution, and you don't necessarily have to back down, but you, you can decisively change. And I'm not suggesting you, you should be, or one should be swayed backwards and forwards. You still need to be decisive. But as I, as I said, if, if somebody's clearly presenting a, a better solution or whatever, then there's nothing, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, okay, that's, let's, let's, let's go with that. Yeah, absolutely. And and if we can, and I'm going to do the famous sandwich bit in a minute, if we can, I'd like to look at uh, what is number eight on your and um, on your 13 lessons, which is harnessing teamwork and trust and and dig a little bit deeper into that. But I'm I'm just going to I'm going to hit you with the sandwich bit. I haven't come up with a better idea for this segment in the podcast. It's just stuck. So these are the kind of snap questions that I'm going to ask you to understand a little bit more um, about you and what kind of interests you and motivates you. So the first question is, what film have you watched over and over again and why? I would have to say my favourite film is probably Highlander. Oh, right. Okay. I, I, I like the soundtrack very much. I think I'm a Queen fan. Yeah. But also, 
it's a it's a classic film where good wins over evil. So the combination of you know that that naive concept that good wins and also a fantastic soundtrack. And so I'm not aware of any movie that's been made about kind of cave diving apart from the rescue obviously but the, but maybe there's a there's there's something there that needs and I think there might be something afoot relating to 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 the Thai rescue but I don't know but we don't need to talk about that best cave dive ever and why I'm not sure about that I I think there's there's too too many variables I've just come back from a trip in Mexico where I saw the, the the most amazingly decorated caves that I've, I've ever seen, either above or below the water, are absolutely un- unbelievable, and that that certainly has to rate up there. But I, my interest in cave diving and and perhaps a lot of life is problem solving, mm-hmm. and diving in Mexico is relatively straightforward. So whilst that was certainly up there, I'm not sure I could pick one particular dive. But certainly that that those amazing formations. And being able to float through the caves was uh, quite quite something special. And were those caves decorated by humans? Apologies, by decorations. What what I mean is stalactites and stalagmites. So, <laughs> so the caves, uh, not wallpaper. Don't panic. I just wondered how they got them drawn <laughs> under the water. <laughs> no, 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 no. Wow. Um, so in, in Mexico, the the the, well, the ocean levels used to be many tens of meters lower. At which point, lots of stalactites and stalagmites have formed really beautiful curtains and, and all sorts of formations. And then as the water levels have risen over thousands of years, these caves have slowly flooded. And so it's quite unusual to get uh, beautiful stalactites and stalagmites underwater because they only form in air. Wow. Did you go to, and I, I don't think it's underwater, but and the cave, and, I, and I, don't, I don't remember what it was called, but there's a cave in Mexico that's got the most amazing crystal formations as well. I think you're referring to Lechuguia. Uh, I've, yeah. I've not been to Lechuguia. You, you because it's so pretty, uh, and it, it's, a, I think it's a world heritage site. Yeah, you, you have to have a special scientific pass or reason to go there. So unfortunately, I, I don't don't qualify on that uh, on, on those grounds. Never mind. Third question is, what scares you? That's a really interesting question. And I, I think probably if I'm honest, I'm more, most worried about letting myself or others down, which is a strange thing to, to say perhaps. But I think if, if I had to say what I was most worried about, it would really be probably le- letting myself down or letting others down. I'm a, a great believer where I can in, in keeping my word. That, that's very important to me. Yeah. And, and actually. It's, it's not an unusual thing. I think a lot of people have that kind of philosophy as well. And it's actually, in many cases, it's, it's what drives us to achieve what it is that we want to achieve. Because if we don't want to let other people down or let ourselves down, then, then we keep pushing forwards. I think the issue comes when, when that's out of balance, when you are so preoccupied with not wanting to let other people down that you actually end up letting yourself down because you become overworked, burnt out, etc etc so I think you have to have a balance between those two things but I think it's I think it's a very important thing to have and then the final sandwich question is do you have a quote or a value and you've possibly already said this or a mantra that you live by on a daily basis the the film was a close run thing so I'm gonna slip another one in there I think uh, if I had to pick a mantra and I'll 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 explain it when I say it uh, having watched Bill and Ted quite a number of times (laughs) I, I quite like the mantra, be excellent to each other. 
And, and what I mean, what I mean by that is the world would be a much nicer place if we all treated each other as we would want to be treated. I think that's really simple. If we interacted with others, whether that's organizations, whether that's individuals in almost every, every sphere that we, we interact with people, if we treated people as we wanted to be treated, I think the world will be quite a different place. I, I absolutely agree. And, you know, I have a seven-year-old and we are continually saying that to her is that treat people the way you would want to be treated yourself. And, and hopefully she will take that through her life. But I think the simpler and far more impactful version is be excellent to yourself. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So that's the sandwich done and dusted. Thank you so much. I think a million people are going to be going out and watching reruns of Bill and Ted now, which is never a bad thing. Let's have a look just at um, the eighth lesson of your 13th lessons, which is which we kind of touched on earlier, which is harnessing teamwork and trust. And, and one of the things that really stuck out to me when I was watching The Rescue was the fact that you kind of come in and, and, and obviously you'd worked with Richard Stanton on many occasions. So you were already a very kind of close knit team a kind of partnership you knew what you were on with with each other but you'd come into sort of in many ways an already sort of established team that had already been on the ground trying to you know trying to make a plan trying to kind of re rescue the, the the guys and then you came in there was kind of language barriers different ways of thinking about things there, there was military civilians all of these people how did you I'm calling it rapid teaming you know how did you so quickly get into a kind of rhythm of being able to work together? Was there a secret to it all? I'm not sure there was a secret and, and I'm not sure it was as quick and as seamless as, as, as you're alluding to. I think f firstly, I would say that particular incident was very unusual for us. Normally when we're invited to any kind of cave rescue incident, we are accepted as experts. And what we found very rapidly when we arrived on the ground was that those that were running the show didn't really understand the environment and they were uh, pulling in any, any expertise or anyone uh, and using them if they didn't make the situation worse. So the first thing we had to do that really was a work in progress was to establish ourselves as experts because that wasn't something that was taken as read. And I think from my perspective, I had assumed to start with that that was taken as read where it wasn't we probably built a rapport very quickly with the uh, american contingent a pararescue unit that had flown in from okinawa and that was possibly through a shared dark sense of humor and also an understanding of how desperate the situation really was where many others on site seemed to be thinking oh that this is this is going to end we didn't think so and the Americas didn't think so. That doesn't mean we weren't working towards a positive outcome, but I think there was, it was certainly tempered with, with realism. And so having uh, enlisted them as uh, friends or, or, or part of a team, as it were, we were able to use their influence uh, to, to spread perhaps the message that we were trying to get across. And we also provided some quite key uh, data points. So the the rescue before it commenced was rehearsed several times and in several different ways. We rehearsed in a swimming pool and we rehearsed outside the cave, simulating some of the elements that, that would be required. And those elements 
provided clear data points that we, we were not just saying we could do this. We were able to demonstrate, look, here is us moving around Thai boys underwater. The leadership of the rescue could actually see that was happening. And so we built confidence in that way. So we were building team teams within the, within the, the groups that were on site, but also trying to provide uh, data and, and I suppose persuade, persuading people that what we were saying was possible, wasn't just possible, but it was the only way. And, and I think that to a certain extent, you know, when, when anybody goes into a new team and particularly if you're going into the team as, as a leader, there is that period of time where you, you have to prove yourself. And some of that is look showing, proving what it is that you can do and, and backing it up. And, and, and also to, to look at one of your, your other lessons, number 11, rehearse and repeat that whole kind of visualization aspect and, and trying things out, which, which you clearly did before the rescue. I think is, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful mantra for life, isn't it? You know, I visualize an awful lot of things, you know, before doing this podcast, I sat down and wrote everything down and then went through it in my head. And, and I think that's, I think that's, that's essential. Going back to the harnessing teamwork and trust thing, you talk about um, the key elements of, of teamwork, which is sharing info, which obviously you did on the ground. The, the kind of collective power, which again was bringing more people on board, the distribution of, of, of credit. And I know that, you know, this is me talking to, to you at the moment, but I know you very clearly always stated that, you know, that credit for, for getting the lads out of the cave goes to a huge number of people. And that's a really important thing to do, isn't it? To recognize everybody as part of that team. It is. And I think there's, there's a, there's an, there's a, a thought there that, that crosses a number of things that, that you've said, but proving yourself is one thing, but I think it's always interesting when you enter a new team, whether it's a, a team that, that exists or a team that's been brought together. And it's quite interesting to uh, look for the alphas. And I, I, I'm not a great lover of the concept of being an alpha. I think sometimes you can prove yourself simply by not making the situation worse. Because if you're in a, an environment that you don't understand, attempting to prove yourself can often uh, backfire perhaps. So that idea of, of, of just, just sitting back and, and watching, and if, if the ship is going in the right direction, then the, there's no perhaps to do, there's no need to do, do any steering. And, and, and I think in Thailand, that's, that's what we tried, what we tried to do initially. We didn't tell anyone what to do. We, we were trying to do what we thought was right without making the situation worse. And it fairly quickly became apparent that the direction we were traveling in was the same direction everybody else needed to go in, perhaps not wanted to go in because we were also dealing with all sorts of elements in terms of both national pride and organizational pride and, and all sorts of of, of other things. And there were issues with chain of command. I, I, I don't think for any large incident, it's, it's unusual that there are internal difficulties or, 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 or a little bit of, I don't want to use the word chaos, but certainly perhaps di discord, but eventually all of that was, was ironed out so that we were all traveling enough in the same direction as we, we were able to achieve, as, as you suggest, as a team, what needed to be done. 
Yeah. And, and I also think in going back to your point about kind of sitting back and observing, you know, we are now living in a world where we quite rightly acknowledge what we call the, the introverted leader. I think previously leaders had always been put up on a pedestal as the, the loudest, proudest person in the room. And, you know, there we are leading from the front and, and being very vocal. And I certainly, you know, growing up in, in some of my first kind of leadership jobs, I thought that's how I had to be. I mean, to be fair, I was working broadcasting, so everybody was like that. But um, I now know that that isn't, it isn't the case. And every team needs that person that is, that is sat back and looking at the direction in which we're going and, and, and quietly observing and then, you know, making decisions when, when there needs to be a decision made or, or putting all of the information together and then making the decision. And I think that's a really important person to have in, in, in any team. And I know in a lot of expedition teams, there is always somebody like that who's almost at the back, kind of pushing things forward in a, in a quietly kind of confident way. And I think that's, that's a lovely role to, to, to be in if it suits your personality. So the final kind of thing I was going to ask you was this concept of, I mean, we've, we've just kind of touched on hurry up and do nothing. So pause and think um, and keeping it simple. There are so many organizations that get completely tangled up in process and, well, we've always done it this way and here's the nine pieces of paperwork that you must do if you want to do this. The, the systems and processes that we, I think, leaders rely on a lot of the time because they think that's leading. Well, actually, it, it isn't. That's an, you finding the excuse for not doing the, the kind of the proper elements of, of leadership, I suppose. So can you explain a little bit about your concept of keeping it simple? I can. And, and the, the easiest way to explain that is, is to revert to my perhaps career, which in the last few years has been networking, connecting computers together across a number of countries. And we, we saw a lot customers, especially IT managers who are focused on redundancy, having multiple ways of recovering from certain problems. And what we noticed was that the, the customers who had the most complex systems and the most redundant systems usually had the most failures because they didn't actually understand the systems. They built so much complexity into a system to solve uh, what they perceived as problems, they created more problems than would have occurred had they kept uh, the solution simple. I think you have to understand what you're trying to achieve with, with any system. And as you build complexity into it, you have to understand what, what's going to go wrong and how, how likely that is to go wrong versus if you did nothing, how likely it is to go wrong. And again, in an, in an IT context, it's calculating the cost of downtime. Obviously, if that cost is in human life, then there's a very different calculation to be made. But certainly, if you increase the complexity of something, ultimately, it will become too complex and you'll cause the failures that you're trying to avoid. And that is especially true with humans, especially when we have to communicate complex ideas or complex amounts of data in potentially high stress situations. We're not necessarily very good at that, even when we train to do that. So having a, a simple system, whether that's a mechanical system or a, a human system, as it were, quite often 
reduces the amount of failure. What I would say is you want to keep something as simple as you possibly can. You need to un understand what level of failure you can tolerate. And, and by that, the phrase I tend to use is you need to accept when it's not your day. <laughs> we, and, and that may be uh, a situation where you say, okay, we, we, we can accept two failures and then our, our network goes down. When we go cave diving, we take a, a certain amount of redundancy. Normally people will die with at least two completely separate air tanks. So if both fail, you accept roughly that it's not your day. So there's, there's a, there's an acceptance of, of how, how far or how likely a failure is. And then you say be, beyond that, I can't, uh, I, I can't plan for that because it just doesn't work. Perhaps you are so heavy. You can't get off the bottom of the cave because you're, you're pinned to the bottom with the weight or, or whatever it is. So it's understanding the, the level of failure you can tolerate and keeping your system as simple as possible to cope with that. I, I, I am all for keeping it simple in, in absolutely everything in life, but it's, it's not always that easy, but I, I do like this idea of, you know, what, what, what's the level of failure that you will accept and kind of working backwards from that. That's great. So John, I have one final question to ask you, and I wanted to know where are you going to be diving next? What's the next big plan? I've got a couple of projects, uh, one in France at the moment, which is uh, a cave that I'm exploring at the moment slowly. Uh, that's called the Fouet Puy in, in Northern France. Uh, and also I've got a, a cave in Yorkshire that I'm slowly, slowly exploring. So a mixture of the two, there's all sorts of stuff going on. There's, there's all sorts of caves that have gone so far and then nobody's gone further. And sometimes it's it, a balance really of once again, a, a, applying a level of effort uh, and also a level of reward. So it's a risk and effort versus reward kind of trade-off. And of course, your concept of why not? Somebody's got to try it, so why not? Again, why not? It, it's, for me, it's fun. I really enjoy the logistics. And I think it's interesting doing a, a set of planning, but then at some point you actually have to, as I would say, put your money where your mouth is <laughs> and, and prove that that plan or that set of logistics is actually good for what, you, what you're saying it is. And, and I really like that moment where it's not just about the talk, the, the action has to happen. And, and, and cave diving is, a, is, is an activity that, that responds very well to the planning and the care, and it, it responds very uh, badly to uh, perhaps a, a lack of that. So listen, if you would like to read John's book, you can do, you can find it on Amazon, 13 Lessons That Save 13 Lives. It's brilliant. Very, very, very useful even if you are not about to jump into a cave and explore it and then also i highly recommend watching the rescue on disney plus because it will 100 percent make you think and think out of the box the amazing things that we can do as human beings john thank you so much for joining me it's been a genuine pleasure to speak to you i don't know whether or not i'm going to go and do some cave diving now but so many of your lessons make perfect sense to me and i'm so grateful are you heading away this summer or perhaps taking time out at home to barbecue in your back garden, enjoy sleeping in your own bed and getting your other half to pretend to be a cocktail waiter? Now, if you are, you will need a holiday read. Could I suggest the five-star rated 
The Leadership Book by Neil Jurd, founder of Leader Connect. Now, I've read it a few times and I love dipping back into it. And in my most stressful leadership moments recently, I've absolutely relied on the wisdom that it imparts. Now, it's available in most of the places that you buy your books, both as a paperback and as a virtual copy. And if you love it, make sure that you leave a review. And if you love this podcast, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'll catch you next time.